time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. Stay tuned, because it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program. COVID-19 is the biggest health crisis in our lifetime. We're working around the clock with doctors and hospitals to stop it, but we need your help. Even if you don't feel sick, you could be carrying it. And just one person with the virus can infect another 40, who then infect thousands more. So I've issued an executive order requiring everyone to stay home to help limit the spread of the virus. Let's protect the people we love. Stay home and stay safe. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, as we roll on with our three-hour tour, uh, we're into hour two. And my guest this hour is the author of a uh, fascinating uh, true crime uh, novel, I guess you would call it, um, called As the Crow Flies, The Redemption of an International Drug Smuggler. And uh, it is for uh, former law enforcement official Ed Hudson, who wrote the book, and he joins me by phone. Ed, welcome to the show. Hi, Tom. Greetings from the Gulf Coast. And how are things at the Gulf Coast? <laughs> well, they're, they're, they're fine here, but my heart goes out to those people in Louisiana. I've, I've seen what a Category 5 can do, because we had Michael over in the Panhandle of Florida, but I, uh, I really feel for him, and my prayers are full. Now, I want to obviously this book is about the the relationship that developed between you working on the law enforcement side and an international drug smuggler, Freddie Crow. Um, but before we get into that, um, how did you get into even working on drug related cases? Those are typically kind of dangerous, and you were patrolling the streets as a <laughs> basically a state trooper giving out tickets to snowbirds from Michigan but um, um, what what made you want to get into that that world of narcotics and smuggling and all of that what Tom I started off as a century police officer century is a little small town north of Pensacola Florida and and uh, that's where Freddie's from but uh, it my my goal was to, to get hired by the Escambia County Sheriff's Office, and, and my interest was just patrolling the north end of Escambia County. But one day I woke up and I said, there's got to be more to it than this. And I, uh, uh, in doing so, I felt like if I had to move on, probably going into narcotics would be the best place to get the most experience in the quickest, shortest amount of time. So I transferred to the narcotics section of Escambia County. 
and uh, worked there for three years. And then I, in 1993, I was hired by the uh, Florida Department of Law Enforcement, which uh, we're not state troopers. We're the state investigative agency. And uh, uh, we worked all kind of, of uh, uh, large-scale crimes, and, and drugs was part of them. And that was kind of, uh, I guess you would call my expertise. Did you take a special, I mean, once you were working in this field, did you take a special interest in Freddie Crow because you shared the same hometown? Um, you know, that may have been part of it. Um, I, it was, uh, is, I, I had a, kind of a small part to play in his investigation, actually. I, I, I was uh, I was the one that arrested his co-defendant Billy Deacle, but uh, in in doing so, Freddie being from Century, I had an opportunity to sit down and interview him several times. And then when I became hired with the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, he was a witness in the very first case that I worked for the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, and I brought him back out of prison to testify, and uh, I. I, I think things began to grow then. We because I I took him back to prison after the case was over with, and that gave us an opportunity to actually talk about him turning his life around. And uh, and and I believe we probably developed a connection then because when he got out of the car, he asked, "Can I can I call you?" Well, I said, "Sure, sure." I you know I tell I've talked to anybody, but. Uh, uh, but from those conversations, our, our, our relationship began to develop, and it was a professional relationship. He, uh, after he served his time, he uh, came back out and uh, uh, actually became a, a confidential informant for me. Uh, and it was mostly just through historical information because he was interviewed by numerous uh, law enforcement agencies, and, uh, and I sort of controlled that. But uh, it was later on, uh, as I was getting ready to retire, he was diagnosed with cancer. Mm. And, uh, and I, I, Tom, I don't know what to say other than I just felt compelled. And, and, I, and I believe it was, it was uh, something from, from God that told me that I should go help him prepare. Well, let me... I, I'm, I'm a Christian. And, and I just felt like that was important. Let me, let me back up a little bit. When you were taking him back to prison from having testified and you got a chance to chat and get to know each other a little bit, and he started talking about how he had turned his life around, doesn't basically every con try to tell law enforcement people that they're born again and, you know, they've turned over a new leaf? What, what made you think there was something different about Freddie? I was I was waiting and and, and watching. I, I I wouldn't I, if 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 it had ended at that conversation, I you know I'd be skeptical. Um, I when he told me when he asked me if he could call me, I thought to myself, sure, yeah, but I didn't really expect the phone call. But he did. He called several times and just called just checking in and and. And then, as he he got near to his uh, the end of his sentence, he he asked if it was okay if he came to see me. Well, 
I began to, to think that maybe he was wanting to change his crowd. You know, when you he he rolled over on and, and became a, a witness against the people that he he was uh, smuggling with, and you kind of burn bridges when you do that. And and I think that was one reason why he he did that, not only to to reduce his sentence, but it became obvious that he was he was wanting to change the people that he hung around. And speaking of the people that he hung around, when you hear the phrase uh, international drug smuggler, that sounds almost romantic. Um, <laughs> do you know what I mean by that, Ed? Um, I, I know. There's been movies made about it. I mean, you know, and when I tell the people the story about, about when I begin to tell them about him, uh, his interest in airplanes, the, 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 in, in his crop dusting and all that, thrill of excitement led him into smuggling drugs and 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 then he began to make these flights to belize and and in order to get back into the country they'd have to fly so low on the deck over the gulf of mexico that the the waves with the the spray from the waves would the salt would begin to collect on the windshield of the <laughs> of the airplane and 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 they did this on in airplanes that that sometimes they bought, sometimes they stole, and sometimes they crashed. How do you steal an airplane, Ed? It's very, I you know, and I, I this is one thing that really that kind of bothered me a little bit. It's the it's easier than stealing a car. It's uh, there there's. I don't even know if I want to put this out on the air, you know. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, it just seems to me there'd be people running all over the uh, the the runway and calling people. And well, well, well they they would uh, what they would do is do it at night when in in small airports when when there was nobody, and and these these planes would be fueled up and and all it took was the right key and they go crank them up and fly them off. And and then, um, what was the nature of the uh, smuggling that Freddie did? He would fly, he would fly empty down to Belize and come back full. Is that how it worked? That's, was it? That, that's it. Anywhere from six hundred and fifty to up to twelve hundred pounds of marijuana. At uh, uh, depending on which airplane they had, you know, which one could could haul the most. But probably probably around six fifty seven hundred average load of marijuana that they paid a dollar a pound for and I, well, I mean a hundred dollars a pound for down in belize and sold for 700 a pound here and now how often would they would they make these runs and did they ever carry anything else was it just the it, it was marijuana. just marijuana just marijuana but uh they uh they ran about every other month Now, were they um, rolling in dough from this, or was it really kind of a payload-to-payload uh, kind of existence? Well, no, they had plenty of money, I had money that, that they couldn't take and put into a bank. So, you know, just the, the mere storage of the money became a problem. And, and Freddie's answer to that was to bury some in PVC pipe and and. Uh, in the woods, 
Well, while he was gone uh, to prison, we uh, we had he was gone to prison in 1995, and we were hit by two hurricanes that year. And and the, oh, no. the uh, ter- terrain was <laughs> nothing like <laughs> what he left with. So, uh, it, it, you know, and I, probably once the book comes out. Uh, We'll have people hitting the woods with their their shovels and picks and stuff, trying to find PVC pipe. I don't know. <laughs> when does the uh, when does the book come out, Ed? It comes out September the first. Uh, now there's a Kindle version that is you can pre-order now uh, uh, through Amazon, and uh, and uh, in September the first it will be released and. And uh, the book itself will be able to be ordered on Amazon. Um, what made you decide to write the book? I uh, I was asked, for one thing, I thought it would be a good story because one of the conversations we had when I was taking him back to prison, I said, Greg, because we had talked about all of his exploits on the airplane, and they, and they, they were pretty fascinating. Uh, I, I told him, I said, Freddie, it ain't like you've got a lot to do right now. You always consider writing a book. And, and he, he said, you know, my sister told me that. And uh, and he did. When he got out, he did a little research, and he pulled a lot of uh, documents, court documents and all. Uh, but he just never never went anywhere with it. So uh, uh, the day of his memorial service, uh his, his wife Sandra had asked me to speak at it and when it was over with I went around to her house and uh, along with other family members and uh, Sandra and, and Freddie's older sister Bobby the, the the one who stood by him from from birth until death uh, Bobby was the one constant in this book uh, she she did not condone what he did but she never gave up on him but uh, they came to me and, and told me, they said, uh, you know, Freddie wanted a book written about his life. I said, yeah, it would have been a good book. And uh, then they said, well, we think you should write it. And uh, I really didn't know what to say about that because I didn't know anything about writing the book. And, and what was that process like? I, I mean, it had to be uh, a huge learning curve. It was, and, and, and I kind of hit a block. I got a couple of chapters down and, and hit a block. I just, and um, I guess it was it was after Hurricane Michael. I, one, one day when I'd been over working with Freddie in his yard, he, uh, I had done some work around his house and everything because he had just gotten down so low he couldn't do anything. And just before I left, he came out to my truck and talked to me a little bit. And, and, uh, he told me, he said, look in your glove box. And uh, I uh, I opened the door and, and looked in there, and he'd put two $20 bills in there. Well, I didn't want that money. I, You know, I wasn't there to make money, and I, I wasn't going to spend it on myself, and I didn't want it, and, but I wasn't going to argue with him about it, so I just shut the lid and drove off. And those, those two $20 bills stayed in my truck for a couple of years. Hey, Ed, and, I have uh, to put a comma here because I have to take a break. Can you stick around so we can talk some more? This is fascinating. Sure. All right. Everybody we'll be right back. Brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Hi, I'm Dr. Jonay Caldoun. We know that COVID-19 is spreading rapidly across Michigan right now. The most important thing people can do to protect themselves is social distancing. That means unless you are a critical infrastructure worker or going out to get food or medicine for your home, you should be staying at home. Stay home, stay safe, save lives. Most of the music you hear on the Tom Sumner program is provided by local artists. Tune in Fridays at 11 for live music and conversation with some of the area's most talented singers, songwriters, and performers. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe Bai from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zonjic. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. This is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Tom Sumner Program, celebrating the rich talent pool from Flint, Genesee County, and throughout Michigan. Fabulous 60s, the marches, the pins, the draft card burnings, and best of all, the music. Well, now Apple House has collected the finest of those songs on one album called Golden Protest, performed by the original artists who made them famous. You'll thrill to Society's Child by Janicean, Pleasant Ballet Sunday by the Monkees, What Have They Done to the Rain by the Searchers, In the Ghetto by Elvis Presley, Silent Night, 7 O'Clock News by Simon and Garfunkel. Who can ever forget this all-time classic? Yes, it's Barry Maguire's immortal Eve of Destruction. And, of course, my own Masters of War. All for the incredibly low price of $3.95. And if you order now, you'll also receive a treasury of acid rock featuring vanilla fudge, blue chair, frigid pink, Moby Grape, the electric prunes, Jefferson Airplane, Lotharian hand people, to name but a few. Plus, as part of this special limited offer, you also get the best of the supergroups with Traffic, Cream, Blind Faith, Ginger Baker's Air Force, and many, many others. Yes, this is a collector's dream, Golden Protest, plus two fabulous 60s albums, all for only $3.95. If you were to purchase these selections separately, they'd cost you hundreds of dollars, and many cannot be found anywhere at any price. Well... It's time for my boot heels to be wandering. But here's something will tell you how you can get this amazing record package. Here's how to order this amazing record package. Just send $3.95 and check your money order plus your name and address to Apple House Box 70K South Bend, Indiana. Once again, that's $3.95 and check your money to Apple House Box 70K. Do it today. Tom Sumner, program.com. The Tom Sumner, program.com. 
This is Jill Stein, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, We're talking this hour with the author of a book that comes out in September uh, about a uh, kind of an unlikely friendship that develops between an international drug smuggler and a law enforcement official. The author of the book is that law enforcement official, Ed Hudson, who uh, joins me by phone. Ed, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Thank you, Tom. Just before the break, we were talking a little bit about how you came to, to write the book and the, the learning curve involved in writing the book. And we left off with um, Freddie Crow, the, the drug smuggler, uh, leaving two $20 bills in the glove compartment of your car. Yeah, yeah, he had, he had put that in there because of some work I'd done. And, and, and I, I just, I really didn't want it. But it just stayed there, and 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 I kind of made it a mission to to find the right place to put it. So uh, it stayed there until uh, February of uh, 2019. Um, I was over in the Panhandle working, uh, trying to help people clear up some, after the uh, hurricane Michael. I made several trips over there, and and uh, I came across a, a Reverend Eddie LaFountain that uh, he was the uh, Baptist preacher for the uh, uh, Mexico Beach Baptist Church. And and he had opened up his facility to become a distribution center, and he was operating pretty much solely off of, of contributions and, and just let people come in and get what they needed. And it looked kind of like a makeshift Dollar General store. And, 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 and I tell you, even in... Uh, in February of 2019, that place really needed that. He, he was feeling a big need, and I saw how overwhelming it was, and it, and it pretty much touched me. And I, I asked him if he'd take the contribution, so I ran and got those two $20 bills. <laughs> and and I, I told him the story of Freddie Crow, and, and, and tears began to come in my eyes as, as, I, as I talked about it. And, 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 and when it was over with, we had prayer. And I left from there with the conviction that that story did need to be told. Now, now, how did I make it a book? I, God only knows. I, <laughs> what, what, what I did was I sat down and I wrote a story. I, I told a story, and and uh, and that's the way the book is written. It's in in, in story form and narrated by you. Yes. Yes, I uh, I wrote it in in third person. Uh, I, I didn't put any eyes in it or anything until the very end. And uh, there's a note from the author at the end where I speak to the reader. The um, in, in the process of of developing this this bond with Freddie Crow, um, you. There, there are two directions that I want to go in here, Ed, and I'm going to just tell you both of them and let you pick which one we do first. But at some point, um, you must have uh, asked him what it was that that drew him into this this whole smuggling um, operation that he became a part of. But also, what was it about Freddie that that caused him to 
eventually turn. He, he, while he was in prison, he testified against others. When he got out of prison, he became your CI. Um, what was it about Freddie that, that caused him to let it go that way? Well, I, I, he got into it, and, and it was it was pretty obvious the reason why he was in it. And, and Judge Roger Vincent, who was the presiding judge over the the case of of all of his co-conspirators and all, when it came time to sentencing, he he makes comment of it that that uh, it it's it was pretty clear to him that it wasn't so much about the money; it was the excitement, it was the thrill. And 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 I believe that that is pretty much it. Now the money was 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 a great benefit, but but the uh, the thrill of doing it is is what kept him going for so long. But but um, what made was it, was Freddie the, was Freddie a pilot? Yes, he was. He was the pilot. Yes. So uh, a big part of it would have been the the enjoyment that that a lot of pilots get from just flying a lot. Well, well he loved airplanes. He he put model airplanes together as a small child and that that grew and he he had his pilot's license I think by the time he was 16. And uh he uh began crop dusting. And 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 then he began to discover marijuana and it, and saw how he could just combine it all together for one big party, you know. The uh Got to fly his airplane, have his marijuana, and and uh, you know, and and it was all good for him. So then, what turned him? He uh, when he was arrested the, the last time, uh, the nobody talked to him. They he got got put in jail, put in the cell, and during that night, he. Uh, he knew what he was looking at. He knew he was looking at a life sentence because of other arrests that he had and all, and the amount of, of marijuana that it involved. Um, that had something to do with it. But then he, he also, I mean, he dearly loved his family, uh, and he he realized what he did to them. And and it, it just... Uh, I, I, I think he made his decision that night while he was sitting in jail because the next morning he didn't ask to speak to an attorney. He told the uh, the corrections officers that he needed to talk with the DEA agent, and that's that's when he made his decision right then. And and you think at least in some part uh, influenced by. Uh, or, or with hope of influencing uh, a lighter treatment for him. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sure that that he was hoping for a lighter sentence and uh, uh, willing to take whatever he got because he knew what he'd done. But, uh, but I'm without a doubt he was hoping for a lighter sentence, and he got one. He did get a sentence reduction because the uh, the amount of cooperation was was uh, was 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 outstanding uh, I, the uh the dea agent who was in charge of the investigation spoke at his sentencing and uh as well as the prosecutor himself um uh, pretty much sung his praises on on the amount of cooperation that he provided 
Was was he basically a pretty likable guy to begin with? Yeah, he was. He was very, uh, <laughs> you know. I, I I didn't know him before when he was doing all that. I knew of him, but but oh yeah, yeah. People and and people today that knew him still tell Freddie's crow stories. He he was just just a just a hoot to be around. Do you tell some of those stories in the book that's coming out? I do. And and uh, without getting into any spoiler alerts, is there is there one you could share with us now? Well, I think um, <laughs> there there is there is there is one that I'll, I'll tell you about. There, there uh, I when I started to work at the Century Police Department, I'd never heard of Freddie Crow, but then. I began to hear about him, and I and I heard about that he was suspect in, in smuggling marijuana and drugs and all this kind of stuff. But but there was also what overrode those stories from everybody was was the 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 stories of Freddie Crow, and and one of the ones that I heard they people would tell me said you know he flew under the bridge, Highway Four bridge going from Century to Jay, Florida was. Well, I know you don't know where that what that bridge is, but no. it was a, a, a two lane bridge, and it it was low. And and I thought to myself, if that guy did that, he's crazy. <laughs> well, that well, well, when when I sat down to interview him for the first time by myself, that was that was the first question that I asked him. I said, Freddie, I've heard a lot of things, but I got to know, did you fly that airplane under the bridge going over to to Jay? And he sort of sat back, and he said, well, no, I didn't. I measured it, and it wasn't enough room. Then he said, but i tell you what I did do. (laughs) 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 And he talked about taking one of his friends, Bobby Simpson, up in an airplane, and they would buzz people and all that kind of This is the only time Bobby ever got an airplane with him. But there's a pipeline that went over the Escambia River Bridge, and there were people on the pipeline painting the pipeline. Well, he flew under that pipeline. And he said when he came up and he looked back over his shoulder, there was brushes going one way and paint cans going the other way. Oh, no. Yeah. But, uh, uh, and he, he said he wound up getting in a little bit of trouble over that one because they <laughs> got the numbers off the plane. But uh, but but Bobby tells me that that was the only time he ever got an airplane with him. He never got into it again, and I heard that from several people. <laughs> um, the the title of the book, Ed, is uh, "As the Crow Flies: The Redemption of an International Drug Smuggler." How much of the redemption were you able to witness? How much of that took place in prison, and how did that unfold? I, uh, Freddie, when, when he was, uh, diagnosed with cancer, I began to talk seriously about him and because, you know, Jesus tells us that, that he goes to prepare a place for us. And, and, and that promise being made tells us that there's so much more after this life. Was, and, was he still and, in prison when he got that diagnosis? No, he was out. Oh, okay. He was already out and had already gotten married uh, to a wonderful lady named Sandra. But but uh, uh, and Sandra 
probably had a lot to do with Freddie's decision too. But but uh, uh, as I began to talk with him, he he told me he was convinced of of where he was going. Um, now, that's not to say that he didn't have doubts at times, and I talk about that in the book uh, because you know the, at, at times he, he just he just felt like he'd done too much to be forgiven. And, uh, and, and, and I talked to him about that and it, it's discussed in the book and, and, and we, we come to a good conclusion on that. What is it that you hope people will get from, from reading this book, aside from enjoying the Freddie Crow stories and, uh, um, you know, some of the, the intrigue of, uh, international right. drug smuggling and law enforcement uh, efforts and so on. Right. Well, it, well, the first thing that I hope is that they do enjoy the book because a book not enjoyed is one not read. Um, but the book deals with choices and consequences of those choices. And it shows the power of redemption and how a life can change. And I hope the reader considers lending a hand to someone during that transformation if they come across someone like that. But but also hope it causes them to look inside and examine themselves because, you know, to set in judgment over other people, we must remember that the, there are none righteous, no, not one. But uh, lastly, I hope the reader can, can see that there's comfort that comes in, in knowing Jesus Christ as their Savior. And because that... That comfort was very, very visual in Freddie. Uh, when when he was first diagnosed, he he really hated to be leaving because because he he didn't want to leave his wife Sandra behind because there, there's one time that he was standing in the kitchen and and he told me he said I know where I'm going but but I just I just really worry about Sandra and he began to cry and but. But but when he got to the point that he could no longer take care of Sandra, when he got down so low, I saw a man that was so ready to go. Hmm. There was comfort for him dying, and there was comfort for his family as well in knowing where he was going. Now, you had interaction with him while he was in prison, and then... Of course, you know, he came to you, became a CI after he got out of prison. Um, but in, and then later you were there when, when this diagnosis happened and, and throughout his deterioration and ultimately his death. Uh, but through all of that time, was there a moment when it went from being um, just a professional acquaintance and, and convenience to a real friendship was there was there a light bulb moment I think I think probably the, the, the day that he called and told me about his diagnosis um, I, 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 I was he, he didn't let everybody know at one time and he didn't really want the word out so quickly but but he told me that I was one of the few that he would call and 
it, I, I think at that moment, I just felt drawn to him. I felt compelled to, to, to help him in any way that I could. How tough was it to get this book uh, out and published? And th- this is a tough time to be, you know, releasing a book and, and trying to promote it. It, it, it is a tough time. Um, but actually, uh, I, I did have some help. I, I, had, uh, I had a good friend uh, of a guy that I worked some cases with, his wife, Christina Kamak. Had uh, had helped me a great deal in uh, in sort of you know proofing the what I'd written and and, and getting it prepared uh, and ready to send to uh, 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 storebook uh, storehouse media group, which is the publisher that I used. I there's a there's a lady that I was hired at FDLE at the same time by the name of Floyd Turner that had has written three books and. Uh, uh, they're called her behind her badge series, but uh, she had a a good friend that was a uh, a editor and publisher, and uh, she introduced me and and when I told her the story, she said, "Send me what you got," because I was I was still thinking about writing some more into it. She said, "Go ahead and send me what you got," and I sent it to her, and she was she was ready to go with it right then from the from the moment it was read. Has has this given you the bug to write some more? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's uh, I I I don't know. I I wrote this one because I think it's just a good story. And and I, I if if I only sell one copy of the book and it gets passed around to everybody, I am just tickled to death with that. I just want people to be able to read it because I think it is a good story. But um, uh, I don't know. We, we will see. We, we will just have to wait and see. Yeah, I may. I don't know. The reason I ask is because you have mentioned several times that, that this is a story and, you know, that, that it was a story that needed to be told and that you um, enjoyed uh, telling this story. And you strike me as somebody who likes to tell stories and, and who can tell what good stories are. And it just makes me wonder if there are more stories floating around that might attract your attention that you might want to try and uh, continue telling stories. Well, I, to tell you the truth, I, I sort of uh, talk about this in the book. I, um, you know, I feel like all of us have at least one story, one good book inside of us. Um, and, and actually I had thought about writing a book and it just wasn't this book. Uh, so there, there are some other ideas. I, I've worked with some fantastic people. I'm, I'm going to tell you the, the, uh, law enforcement community that I work with were just fantastic. And, and there, there are some, some, some fantastic stories out there that, that I could tell. And that's um, and that's nice to hear in this day and age, Ed. Yes, I they, I, I can't say enough. They're 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 some of the best men and women that I've ever met. Uh, were, were wearing the badge, and uh, I uh, I I would kind of like to tell stories about them. I I don't like I don't like talking about myself that much. Um, 
I, I just don't. But but uh, but but every now and then, you know, if 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 I worked, at, I, I worked some pretty strange cases. And uh, uh, one guy wanted uh, his mother killed with a rattlesnake. You know, I worked <laughs> up and uh, and uh, and you know, in some other cases that that were just it would just make you scratch your head. And you know, those, those probably would make a good book. And uh, we'll just have to wait and see. Well, Ed, it's a pleasure talking with you, and this is a fascinating story. The book comes out September first. And it's called As the Crow Flies, The Redemption of an International Drug Smuggler. And, Ed, um, we're, we're almost out of time, but I always like to give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about, about you, the story, the book, etc. Um, have you set up a website? Well, I don't have a website, but I do have a Facebook page. Okay. And uh, if you uh, just search Ed Hudson Author. And uh, it will take you to the to the Facebook page, and in that Facebook page, I have pictures of of the people of a lot of the people that are in the book. So uh, so the reader can go on there and look at the and be able to put a face to the name when they read the book. And what will the distribution of the book be like? I, I know you mentioned that there's a Kindle version. Uh, I, I had a notice about um, you know the opportunity to request an ebook. Um, is there um is it going to be where all fine books are sold uh it you can order it there if it's not there you can order it at uh at, at practically any bookstore yes but i'm amazon and some of the uh um, barnes and noble and some of the other uh, usual yes. suspects will yeah. will have yes. access to it they they will sure will well, this is uh, this has been a real treat, and uh, Ed, thank you so much for spending this time with me. I appreciate it. Well, listen, I really appreciate the opportunity, and I, I do thank you. All right, take care. Okay. Bye. That was uh, Ed Hudson. He was uh, a law enforcement officer who uh, was uh, who ended up in an unlikely uh, friendship with. Uh, an international drug smuggler. Coincidentally, they happen to come from the same town. But um, the drug smuggler, Freddie Crow, is the uh, inspiration for the uh, for the book. It's a, a true crime story. It's true crime with a twist. Um, it's called As the Crow Flies, The Redemption of an International Drug Smuggler. Anyway, uh, we got more of the Tom Sumner program coming up. We were talking religion in the last hour a little bit, talking about the uh, religious right coming up in the third hour. We're going to be talking about um, religion in a very different way. A new novel called Conclave looks at the... uh, at the Cold War in Europe in 1978 and the um, death of Pope John Paul I and the conclave that was formed to select a new pope. Should be very interesting. That's coming up in the third half of our three-hour tour. If you're streaming us at 92.1 FM, we have a... uh, they, we're going to let them squeeze a few words in edgewise. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well.
Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Do you have feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacle that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not. It's a major factor in dancing like a retard. may cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them. Also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at 4 in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people. And it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. Alcohol may cause pregnancy. And it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy, which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the back. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. The interest of goodwill. The Hoffman Beverage Company feels compelled to make this announcement. It's simply this. All Hoffman flavors have that happy taste, except sarsaparilla. We might as well come right out with it. We haven't quite hit that happy, carefree note in sarsaparilla. Now, please don't misunderstand us. Our Hoffman sarsaparilla is absolutely dependable. It's trustworthy. It's loyal. And many fine, upstanding citizens love it. But it just isn't what we call happy. You take our Hoffman orange, it's absolutely rollicking. Our lemon is almost giggly. 
Our black cherry and black raspberry are so bubbling with happiness, they dance in the glass. They all have natural flavor and famous Hoffman Steady Sparkle. We're sorry about Hoffman Sarsaparilla. Why isn't it happy? Well, let me ask you, could you be happy if your name This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. I would like to take you to the opera where you are going to hear a Mozart opera, which is nothing but an opera written by Mozart. (laughs) This is an opera in one act, and it begins when the curtain rises. Otherwise, you couldn't see a thing. (laughs) The stage setting is a kind of a forest. There are two large trees, which, of course, indicates the forest. It's a kind of a small forest, but it's a forest. First, the tenor comes in, he is supposed to meet his soprano, as they usually call those ladies. But she is a little late this particular season, so he hides himself behind one of the trees in order to surprise her when she comes in a little later, which she does. So when she arrives, she can't find him because he is occupied behind one of the trees. Now, he's with a knife carving her name into the (laughs) scenery. She doesn't know that he is there, but, uh, well, as a matter of fact, she must know it because she saw it during rehearsals. (laughs) Either she pretends that she doesn't know it or she's just plain stupid. (laughs) Uh, Whatever it is, she gets across the stage somehow and takes place behind the other tree, which, for the occasion, hides her. (laughs) To a certain extent. Now, the chorus comes in, but nobody knows why, except Mozart, and he is dead. (laughs) And that's just too bad. Next, her father comes in, and he is a very old man, Primarily because she is a very old soprano. <laughs> and he is very angry because apparently she is not his daughter. Now, this has nothing to do with the opera. I found that out myself. <laughs> and that's what we call research. <laughs> anyway, he decides that He has had enough of her, so he tells her to die, and that's exactly what she's going to do. (laughs) And with that, the opera ends, and people can go home. Now I take you to the opera house where you hear the conductor's footsteps when he enters the orchestra pit. Here he comes. Yeah, he walks sideways. (laughs) And this is the overture. This, ladies and gentlemen, was the first part of the overture. Now you hear the second part, and that's exactly the same. This, 
little bloop is an extra bloop. We have in case we shoot one shot of bloops. But that has never happened, so we have a lot of bloops left over. Now the curtain rises and the tenor arrives. He's a little tall fellow, he comes in. He comes in from the left in a single file. He goes behind the tree right away. <laughs> now the leading lady arrives. She is supposed to fill the part of the soprano. Now she not only fills it, she overflows it a little bit. She's a big husband, a big, uh, uh, she's a big soprano, that's what she is. She's what we call a messy soprano. She comes in in a single pile. She also arrives backwards, but nobody notices the difference. She goes behind the other tree. She can hardly wait because... Uh, see, she is... She supposedly hasn't... She hasn't met him for a long time, so she is just... She's anxious. Now is the time for the chorus. The light is dimmed, so you can hardly see these people when they arrive, and that's why they're dressed in a kind of cheap underwear. Because there is no reason to spend a lot of money for costumes when you can't see them. Right? And that's the way the management of this theater feels about it, and that's the way it's gonna be. Here they come. Bread and butter. Now they're all in and they fool around in the dark for a little while. This is a mixed chorus. Bread and butter. Now they're out, they get the money and go home. Next, a baritone comes in and sings, Torre ador, Torre ador. But he finds out that he's in the wrong opera. Now, the father comes in, the old man, and he is the basso.
now told her what he had to say and she understands him quite well so now she prepares herself to die but before she dies she sings an aria the so-called die aria <laughs> She seems very happy about it. She dies by stabbing herself between the two big trees. was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
Sumner Zajic, Don't Touch That Dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner.